Welcome back to another episode of Security Management Highlights. Um, there are a vast array of, of threats um, against which we as architects and engineers can mitigate through good design. Jill Cavanaugh, partner at Buyer Blinder Bell Architects and Planners in Washington, D.C., is going to speak with us about crime prevention through environmental design. The appetite today is greater than ever for content. Content is changing because younger people like snippets. They like 10 or 15 minutes. They don't want to sit in a movie theater for three hours. Everybody is in this business. Mr. Stephen Bernard, Senior Security Advisor for BernardGlobal.com and former Executive Vice President for Major Film Studio, joins me to speak about the fascinating world of entertainment security. I'm your host, the security guy, Charlie Harold. Hi, Joe. Welcome to Security Management Highlights. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, you lead the U.S. State Department in many projects overseas in environmental design principles for CPTED. So tell us what CPTED is uh, to give our viewers and listeners an overview of that. Sure. So crime prevention through environmental design is, uh, is the uh, long name that is abbreviated by SEPTED, which is CPTED. Um, but nevertheless, crime prevention through environmental design was a movement that came about sometime in the 60s. Um, and it was really a, um, its premise is the ability to influence decision making that precedes criminal acts. So in many ways, it was about exercising a degree of territoriality, about uh, a, a very clear delineation of the ownership of space, encouraging and enhancing patterns of natural surveillance. So um, as opposed to highly sanitized environments, this was about mixed mixed uh, use neighborhoods where there's a lot of eyes on the street, a lot of opportunities for people to run into each other through um, through design that facilitates unplanned interactions and, and, a, and a huge degree of emphasis on a community um, engagement in surroundings so that people were dearly invested in, and, and had a degree of ownership over their environments, which would contribute to a sort of stewardship. And it would really discourage um, or create the perception that there was a discouragement of criminal activities that were to take place. And I think yeah. what's interesting in terms of, um, we'll call it SEPTED, but what's interesting I think about that is it was about deterrence. And a lot of our work with the State Department in many ways acknowledges that there is no means to deter potential threats in a contemporary society. And what you have as a result in a lot of the State Department work overseas is a very visible, highly, um, highly visible approach to security, which is less invisible and more visible in a manner that is supposed to put security in the forefront visually. Those threats are changing all the time. So what do you do? You take the building that was built in 1909, and you upgrade it, and five years from now, the threats are different. So that's a huge challenge in your design. But don't you think that implementing a lot of these, uh, we'll call them uh, showcase examples, public examples, for the opportunist, a guy that happens to be walking by or wants to do something in the now, I think a lot of these things have, do have a deterrent effect. I agree, and I think that's an important distinct, d- distinction is, um, are you trying to deter or are you trying to minimize damage? Um, and I think as a, as a client mission, uh, they're distinct. So State Department in many ways is trying to minimize damage, and that's by hardening uh, perimeters of their embassies. Domestically, if you think of Park Service, National Park Service, for example, they have um, and, and their portfolio um, maintain administrative jurisdiction over a lot of the monuments and memorials. And the intent of those is to encourage visitor use sort of the opposite of the State Department in some ways. State Department is a 
is likes to curate, highly curate and control access. Whereas Park Service is, is um, completely um, open. Um, the whole premise is visitor use and experience and it's their tactics to implement security is much, much different. You know, I've had this discussion with people about the term prevention because 10 years ago, you'd have a public official get on the air and say, oh, we couldn't predict that, it's not preventable. But in mitigation, there is a component of prevention. So if your building design slows people, deters people, and you know, to put it frankly, less people get harmed in a, in a violent event, that is prevention to me. So it is an interesting balance between mitigation, prevention, use. This must be uh, extremely challenging in the design phase. It is, and I think it starts in the largest sense of uh, the urban context, and then you, as a designer, drill down into, um, you know, the specific room, the specific entrance, the specific um, aspects of the building. But environmentally, um, you know, it starts with the degree of porosity um, within your project. That helps you kind of refine what is the asset, what is the threat, um, how are people approaching this um, asset, and what is the threat associated with it. Um, and that helps you establish kind of a macro sensibility of what you're trying to design against. Um, and then within the building, you know, to your point about prevention, once the threat is inside the building, what are you preventing? Is it mass casualty or is it, you know, the inactive shooter scenarios? Is it is it preventing a, a breach of a higher order? Um, so they're all decisions that kind of start from the outside in, in terms of how we as designers approach uh, security management and mitigation. So let's talk about resiliency, right? So we build the new building. That's one challenge. And if we build a new building, we're in the now. We know what the threats are. If you're modifying an old building, the threats 100 years ago when they built it weren't there. Now they've changed. But, you know, let's look at the pyramids. The pyramids are a great example of this because the security they built in there has lasted 3,000 years, right? It's only until modern history that people were breaching that. So how do you how do you look at resiliency when you first put down that that first layer of design? Good question. Uh, so in our firm, uh, my firm, Bayer Blinder Bell, we, um, one part of our practice is to critically assess, evaluate, and make recommendations for existing buildings and how we uh, adapt those new building or old buildings for contemporary use. And often we deal with things that weren't anticipated at the time of the original design, such as accessibility, such as security. Um, and so we know with different vintages of architecture, whether it's neoclassical, whether it's mid-century modern, we know the particular constraints associated with that type of construction of that era. Um, so if you think of something like the pyramids, there's an inherent density to uh, the materiality of how those were constructed, um, which plays to its advantage in terms of a, a certain type of threat. Um, whereas if you're thinking of a glass and steel contemporary uh, or mid-century modern building, that might be on the street with very little setback. It's a completely different um, approach to retrofitting it for contemporary security requirements um, that often relies and it will at first acknowledges the lack of setback, which is usually your best advantage of defending out the threat. Um, and then you focus more on you know methods and tactics of hardening. So I was very fortunate years ago to work on the design and build security aspects of the new executive building and the Fox Network Center, which was Fox headquarters for the whole Fox Network worldwide. So speak to me as if I'm a security director and I haven't been to one of these meetings where I have the architects and the budget guy and, and the person taking notes on change orders and as-builds. And it's quite an overwhelming process for a security director. Talk about the, 
you know, the navigation and the politics of the tension between the parties and, you know, the architect wants this, the budget guy wants that. This is quite a process. And it, amazingly, it comes out uh, with an end product that really works. Sure. I think the first question you want to always ask any any sort of group of stakeholders when discussing security is to you really talk about the asset and about the threat. Um, there are a vast array of, of threats um, against which we as architects and engineers can mitigate through good design. Um, it could be a layered approach. Um, it could be, uh, you know, certain things can't change, like setback. Um, so, you know, we want to start to understand when we talk in the initial stage of uh, a security analysis um, to help define the parameters of the program, what are we designing against? What do we have in terms of fixed um, aspects of the building? Um, and by the way, is it a new building or is it an existing building? Um, and we do want to know things about um, porosity. What's the intent? Is it to welcome people in or is it to send a signal to really keep people out? Um, is the, you know, what is your perimeter? What's your hard line? Is it start at the edge of your campus or is it inside the building? Um, and all of these things help play into the order of magnitude of the, um, the security scope, which, you know, again, drives um, or drives directly to the budget um, in terms of what kind of investment um, is this. Um, it's separate for new construction as it is for existing buildings, but, um, you know, retrofit is arguably much different than a, a greenfield site when you have the availability to site the building in a way that privileges an inherent defensibility. How prevalent do you think this is in society? I, after speaking with you, I just realized that as a former police officer, I walk into every single building and look for two things, entrance, exit, and cover. Three things. That's three. I can't count. <laughs> so you know what I'm saying? I, I think I'm looking at sure. buildings that are designed that way, and I didn't even realize it until I spoke to you about this. I think, in, unfortunately, today it's pervasive. Uh, whether you see it or not, there is uh, uh, layers of security you know, far beyond what's visible already at work by the time we set foot in a building. Now in Washington DC where I practice, the density of government buildings combined with the monuments and memorials really leaves very little that's unscreened. So it's very commonplace um, to walk into a building and encounter what you see, which is very akin to an airport. Um, and that could be in uh, any of the government buildings, the landmarks, the memorials, the transit stations, museums, even parks and plazas. So unfortunately, it is, there is a degree of um, vigilance that is enforced and reinforced by our built environment that's already taking these things into consideration. Well, I was uh, doing a little research and, and noting that the mall in Washington, D.C. You know, has some marble benches, which are aesthetically really neat looking, but it's also a great cover. If there was a shooter, I can jump behind a piece of marble and be somewhat protected for my escape. So this stuff is, is kind of blended in everything we do, and I really find it fascinating. That's a fantastic example. I, I, I will confirm um, Barb Leonard Bell did the per Smithsonian Institution Perimeter Security Plan. This is many, many years ago. And one of the things that we were cognizant of was, uh, on one hand, as a, as a designer and an urban designer, to take into consideration the specific and unique mission of each museum. Um, but also, on the other hand, to be cognizant of the larger coherence of the streetscape. So when you have a Smithsonian a sequence of Smithsonian Institution museums along a particular avenue, I think it's important to provide a couple things. One is first and foremost public safety. Uh, and the second is a hardening along the perimeter of, of the museum. And at the same time, why not provide some amenity? So those marble benches you're talking about that are very clever 
uh, perimeter security devices with pretty substantial foundations also provide a degree of respite for some of the visitors that come and have really nowhere else to sit and take a break. And all of those need to be customized towards the architecture of the museum and ideally the collection inside. If you look at the Natural History Museum, there's a very clever series of boulders, which I think evoke some of the geological collection inside the museum, but also provide a very clever and, and uh, thoughtful perimeter security approach that might seem as if it's part of the museum, but provides invaluable. Give us a few tips on how we could work more effectively with architects and security design uh, so that I, you know, me as a security professional doesn't compromise the functions or aesthetics. Because, you know, I want to come in and say, I need 10 cameras there. Well, they'll look ugly for the museum. I don't care. I need 10 cameras, right? I need to understand how we can make this work as a security professional during the design phase. Well, again, I think it helps to um, to understand what is the what's the goal beyond public safety? Is it to demonstrate in a visible in a visible and physical way uh, the breadth of security you're providing for your visitors? Um, in other words, are there overt gestures? Uh, very demonstrative gestures of this is a secure building. Conversely, is your goal to minimize the intrusiveness of these devices visually? There's a whole range of product in which you can sensitively integrate in almost an invisible way a lot of this technology. Um, and so it's a matter of really defining for your design team your goal, um, and then we'll help you achieve that. So finally, let's talk about some real life examples. And I understand your firm worked on the Washington Monument redesign by adding a different, a new building in front of the monument. Talk about that. Uh, it's really a fascinating design concept and success. Yes, thanks. This is a great example. Uh, this is something we've been working with. Um, we're collaborating with the Park Service for about 10 years on. Um, and ironically, this is going to open in a couple days. Uh, but we, we initially started the process um, well over 10 years ago and came uh, developed in collaboration Park Service uh, a myriad of different options to address security at the Washington Monument. So taking a step back and uh, right after 9-11, a temporary shed was implemented, was, it was installed inside of the Washington Monument. And it was meant to be very temporary. It was meant to just functionally screen visitors as they entered the monument. And it remained there for about 15 years. So in 2009, the National Park Service engaged our firm uh, to develop different conceptual approaches uh, towards replacing the temporary screening facility. And our firm, in collaboration with the National Park Service, uh, explored a range of options uh, that, that, were, that varied from landscape solutions to highly designed architectural interventions. Um, and those, were, those used the geometry of the plaza outside the monument in some ways to transition visitors into the monument from underneath the plaza. And they ranged from uh, replacing the temporary facility um, in place. And ultimately, uh, the Park Service did, did decide to replace the temporary facility with a new facility in kind. And so our, our challenge as designers was to reconcile two very formal geometries, one obelisk and one circular plaza. And from an architectural standpoint, develop something that made sense from an architectural standpoint, but then also incorporate the requisite security requirements of the U.S. Park Police. Um, and those you know, we're challenging, but not uh, not unmanageable. Um, and we were able to um, incorporate a commitment to cultural resource management, which was the preservation of the view to the top of the monument from inside this facility. Um, it was very important to allow visitors 
that degree of visual coherence such that when they entered the facility, there was an opportunity to look up through this glass ceiling and see the top of the monument. And we achieved that through working with blast analysis consultants um, and other um, engineers on our job uh, to minimize the amount of equipment present for heat rejection for the mechanical systems, uh, introducing a geothermal system further outside on the monument grounds, and a degree of um, resilient glazing that would mitigate against uh, threats from the outside. Well, I think this is brilliant. Uh, really, it, it looks seamless to the person visiting because they walk, they park their car, they walk in, and they look up, and they keep looking up, and all he sees the monument all the time. It's just, it's just brilliant. I, I really uh, admire uh, people's efforts and intellect in this area, uh, and it's safe. I mean, that's the whole point. Very, very good. Now, here's my final comment, uh, and tell me what you think about this. Anytime I went to one of these design meetings, all I ever asked for before I walked out was this. I need future conduit. The biggest challenge. Because <laughs> if, I, if I got that future conduit, two or three rows of it, I could expand my security system. So it's a little bit in jest, but it's also a little bit That's true, exactly isn't it? right. That's right. I think, uh, again, that gets to the heart of what, what our firm does, which is uh, build in flexibility. Uh, we reappropriate existing buildings for the next generation. And part of that is inheriting the shortcomings of previous generations and understanding how a particular building can be adapted. And so we always understand you've got to build in future flexibility, build in extra chases, build in extra ducts. Um, understand that you don't understand how the next generation will function, but that there can't ever be enough residual space um, to allow yourself the flexibility to uh, run another cable, run another line, enable the systems to run better and more functionally. Ideally, you never need that because the systems get smaller and things get more digital, um, but you have to allow yourself that flexibility. Joe Cavanaugh, buyer, blinder, bell, architects and planners in Washington, D.C. Fascinating conversation, Joe, and I'd love you to come back on the show and maybe we could do an hour about this because there are so many other aspects we couldn't unfortunately get to, but uh, I think we've covered a lot. Thank you so much for coming on Security Management Highlights. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Hi, see, Welcome to Security Management Highlights. How are you? Great. Thank you. Now, we're going to talk about entertainment security today, and what a coincidence. I was in the business. You were in the business for a long, long time. What's new? Intellectual property is kind of the new attack vector, right? And back in the day when we worked at this, we were just talking before the show, there were no laws against these things. People were doing camcording in studios and selling the movies in the back alley on Santine Alley, and you really couldn't do much about it. But now we're high tech. Now all the movies are digital, and people are more and more going after this because there's a value to it. The appetite today is greater than ever for content. Content is changing because... Younger people like snippets. They like 10 or 15 minutes. They don't want to sit in a movie theater for three hours. But everybody is in this business. So you see what's happened with Netflix, with Hulu, with Disney getting into it, Apple's getting into it, Amazon is in it. Um, a lot of players that go far beyond the walls of the studios, right. as we knew them, um, everybody's making content and they're producing it all over the world, which brings a whole other set of risk to it. It's amazing what's happening. And, and so, like I said, the fact that we all carry a, a mini computer in our in our yeah, pocket, that's right. right? And we can watch whatever we want, when we want. This is not going to go away. So how you protect it, you protect it until it's released. And after that, you probably are, are not going to be able to protect it. So you have to know that ahead of time 
and uh, and deal with it accordingly. Now the world is uh, a lot more dangerous. I got a call years ago that said, you know, we're we're thinking of filming this movie called Pirates of the Caribbean, and we want to shoot in Venezuela. And I go, you know what? Let me do some research. I wouldn't recommend that right at the time. This is when it was all on the rise, right? They did it anyway. It was a business decision. Everything was fine. It all worked out. How much are productions listening to this this recommendation from the you were you know the sea level security guy because the world's different now. You just can't go down the street and start shooting. There's so many more considerations to to look into. I, I think in our day when we started, production safety was recognized as something that was important. So you had more dedicated resources to a production as it related to safety. Now I think that security is included as well, and there, there's a melding of those responsibilities because you can't be sending everybody around the world. Right. So. Um, I, I like that a lot. Um, it's about protecting the asset, right? The intellectual property is the script, the storyline, the actors, the location, the villain. You don't want it leaking until it, you're ready for it to right. leak. So I think it's far better than it was. The, uh, the other thing I see happening is that there is more effort being put into where the location is going to be and making sure that there's security around it. Getting people in, getting them out, not being stupid. Uh, it's a new day. Everybody's a producer. I'm a producer. I got my little camera. I got my little show here. And I got content, intellectual property all over the place. Are we finding that the attitude towards intellectual property has changed? And it's almost like everything is free or should be free. In other words, yeah, you know, I can play Stoney's movie because it's just out there now. And it's like a shift, a cultural shift or something, right? Absolutely. It's it's a battle that, you know, we're not going to win. I think that's the mentality today. And um, it's moving so fast that I don't think we can keep up with it. I don't know what the end game is. Um, one thing that I've noticed, though, is that overall piracy, as we used to know it, right. when it was more analog, right? Yeah, an old-fashioned camcorder right. in your hand, right? right? Is not as severe from a negative impact today as it was then um, because the prices have come down. Oh, the the way that you view it has come. I mean, you know, yeah, when, that's right. The yeah. internet, yeah. Um, you know, DVDs, uh, a lot of different ways to view it. Live streaming, sign up, subscribe, and you got it on your phone. Right. So it's taken the ability of the pirate to make good money on his effort away. It's diminished it. So I think it's helping, but piracy is not going to go away. Are studio security executives in the C-suite now tied to the C-suite? Maybe you're tied to the CFO. The CEO, I'm not really sure. Or, you know, sometimes I don't know if any studios have a CISO or anybody like that, or CSO. Do they? So I did. You were that's right. You were yeah. C level, right? I was. Yeah, yeah. you were I there so long. Unique. I forgot. <laughs> yeah, I, I had it when we were visited by a nation state. So. That oh was yes, fun. that was your that was your keeper. I remember yeah. that, right? I think what you know you can have this debate all day long about where a function should report, but I think what's most important is that the CSO and the CISO have got to speak the same language, define their roles and responsibilities, and get at it. Because you got to have both. CISO role, very complicated. Right. It requires a different skill set. Physical security, maybe not as complicated today. But um, there's, there's plenty of room in the barrel for everybody. This is a lot of work, and it's an important effort. Well, the, the interesting difference in the entertainment business, if I'm making widgets... The security department is not usually involved in the supply chain protection of the thing in the box to Best Buy. That's not really a threat vector. But intellectual property, your only property manufacturer, is something that people want to steal all the time. It's like one of the number one things to steal, right? 
So the C guy has to be involved in that for the strategy. And the strategy of the business is we need to produce something that doesn't get stolen. Because if it gets stolen, we have no product. That's the big thing. So I'm glad to hear that's going on. Yeah, stolen or compromised. Like I said, right. you know, if, if the script leaks and it's a, an action movie with villains and all that, you don't want that getting out. It diffuses the, the appeal of the right. product. So, or, or the critics get it and say, the script is terrible. Don't go see the movie. Or, or the online ratings That's right. services yeah. that can, like, I won't name names, but That's right. <laughs> they can destroy you before you open. That's true. Remember, we had that guy that went around all the studios getting the scripts and spoiling them. Yep. And uh, one big movie that was actually an excellent movie at Fox didn't do as well. Uh, it's now a classic, but it was because this guy said he didn't like it. That's right. Yeah. Now, let's talk about the stalker part of it. Uh, that was always a serious thing. You know, the FBI, Secret Service used our studio stalker data to come up with some of the things that's happening now in the world. But now celebrities are closer than ever to anybody. You used to have to look up their secret address. Now they just put everything out there. They're out in the social media. Uh, we found a rise in the stalker contact problem. It used to be that less people, less stalkers came to you physically. That was very rare. They'd write you letters, right? Are they showing up in person now more because of all the social media? I think they are. And with stalkers, what I've, my experience has been, typically they're more interested in talent they see on television regularly okay. rather than one time in a movie theater. Oh, that's interesting. Unless the, the storyline is perhaps offensive. Right. Then that's a different thing. But they are showing up. People are more mobile today. Right. And it's unbelievable, as you know, what some of these guys are thinking. Oh, it's crazy. And yeah. what they try to do. I, I do think it's still good that there's not a lot of physical harm that I've seen. I mean, we've, there's been cases, of right. course, but not, not a lot. So. And, and how are, how's the entertainment business handling this? It used to be that these celebrities were kind of on their own, providing their own security was kind of a basic model. Are we still there? Or are we kind of trying to incorporate some of this into an overall strategy to, to protect the intellectual property? One component of which is the talent. Absolutely. Um, there's an expectation, and there should be, that whatever studio they're working for is going to reasonably protect them. Right. So, you know, what you have is if you're an A-list talent, you probably have your own security. Okay, because you, you can afford for it. that. Yeah. Because you can afford it, or the studio will pay for it. Well, it's right? if you're super big, right. Right, because you don't want it to go wrong. Right. We're in the business to entertain, not to harm people, right? So on the safety side, the security side, that's where the focus is. I think it's much better today than ever. And what I'm seeing around the world is that um, a lot of countries that do junkets and premieres and, and red carpet events, um, they get it. So the security staff now uh, are far better at doing their job than ever before. So the studios and the production companies do not have to send an entourage of people to every place they go. That, I think, is much better because the locals speak the language. They're licensed. They've got the relationships with law enforcement. It's a better way of doing it. Tell me the differences between the, an entertainment business and a you know manufacturing communication business. The studio world is just a different, different thing. And it's hard to explain to people. It's very, As you said, it's extremely unique. It's a lot of fun. It right? is a lot of fun. Um, and uh, it, every day is different. And I, I think one of the things that's different, too, is you're dealing with a lot of innovative and really creative people that are, are receptive to change, move quicker, right? right? As opposed to we make widgets, right? right? And there's the assembly line, and here comes another one. It's quite different. Not that you don't still have the responsibility of safety and security for any company right. that you work for, but studio business, different. I think you hit it on the head because 
you are expected in that security space to be creative. And so you were expected to perform to a high level. But you know what? They gave you the money for it. They gave you the, the uh, authority and said, let's create something, do something. And I think that is what's different about it. And boy, we've made some outstanding models in all the studios. Right. As we always to, you know, talk about the different things we did. And I think I think that was the, the best thing I got out of it was you had to create. Yeah. I And I think you hit the nail on the head there that more than ever today, every hire you make better be the right one. That's right. Right. Because you don't have the luxury of having an army of people. And, and people need to be more open to wearing multiple hats. Yep. Uh, learning new roles and responsibilities. And uh, I think it's really key. Steve Bernard, always thank good you. to see you, my friends. Chuck, thank you. And you're out doing a private venture right now, doing stuff? I am. Fantastic. You join your semi-retirement or your new... Uh... Uh, I'm working harder, I think. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it goes. Thanks for coming on Security Management Highlights. 